Well, good morning, saints. Good to see you all in church this morning. I'm fresh back from Calgary. Thank you to everyone who prayed for me over the last couple of weeks. God willing, I won't be going anywhere any further than the golf course now for the next month. And uh, I do appreciate you all praying for me, though, as that, that month was extraordinarily busy with travel and ministry in all kinds of different places. And I had a real sense of going to those different places and addressing those different groups on your behalf, right? I, I felt like that New Testament model where the church would send someone out to pray or to preach on their behalf, and I definitely had that. So thank you so much for praying for me and for my family. Let's bow our hearts in prayer as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you again for gathering us together today. Thank you that as we are gathered together, Jesus, you by the Spirit are present. That the Father is glorified. That our hearts are knit together in communion with one another, with saints around the world and throughout time. And most importantly, that our life in Christ is made real and tangible for us. We ask and pray now that you would nourish our souls by your word. That your word preached would be like water on thirsty ground. And that our lives would be recalibrated around truth. That our affections, that we would repent of those things that we love, that we ought to hate. And that we would fall ever more deeply in love with you. Our Lord, our Savior, and our Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I trust by now you have Acts chapter 2 open. Last week we looked at an enormous passage of Scripture. This week we're just going to look at a very brief one, verses 42 to 47. We're dropping in on the account here immediately on the heels of 3,000 people hearing the word of God preached, taking it to heart, repenting, throwing themselves upon Jesus, bowing their knee to him as Lord, and being baptized. Did you see that in the verse right before? The point is that this is the formation of the church right in this moment. This is the formation of the New Testament church. And the formation of the New Testament church happens by the power of the Holy Spirit around the preaching of the gospel around the good news of God's love for us in Jesus. Now, I'd be remiss if I went any further without just telling you what the gospel is. You see, when many of us consider God, for some of us, we keep the thought of God at arm's length. We refuse to allow ourselves to believe that there truly is a God over the universe and over our lives. Because the thought of there being a God is terrifying. We're all too aware of our own sin, our own shortcoming, the ways that we rebel against him actively and passively by the things we do that we shouldn't and by the things that we don't do that we should. And so we have this sense of dread that if there is a God, we probably deserve his wrath. And the answer from Scripture is, that's absolutely true. Every single one of us, we don't just live with feelings of dread or guilt. We live under the objective, real guilt and wrath of God. Does that sound like good news so far? But here's the gospel. That our God is not like other gods. He doesn't crush rebels. He dies for them. 
He dies for us and in our place, paying the price that our rebellion and our sin justly deserves so that we can spend all of eternity reconciled to our good God and to one another. Well, friends, that's the preaching of the gospel. And on this day in Acts, when the Holy Spirit was poured out earlier in chapter 2 and Peter got up and he began to preach, 3,000 souls heard that word of God, they repented, they believed, and they were baptized. The church of Jesus Christ was established on this day. Now, if you're heading back out into the parking lot after the service this morning, you're going to see right here a cornerstone. Have you seen that on our church building? We built this church building about eight years ago, and our congregation was actually founded does anyone know what year? I'm looking at a couple of you in particular. Come on now. I'm looking at you, Donna. 1856. Our church was founded in 1856. So that was a long time ago. But the church of Jesus Christ was founded on this day, Pentecost Day, over 2,000 years ago now. In these six brief verses that we're going to look at, we will see a picture or a snapshot of a biblically normal, healthy church. We're going to note patterns, practices, and paradigms that are established by God for his church from inception, from day one. And the end is going to be glad and generous hearts. Okay, so let's jump in. Look at verses 42 to 43. As you heard George read that, you might have noted that there are four traits to which the earliest church devoted themselves. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, you can think of those as four distinct things that they devoted themselves to. Other commentators would look at it and say it's two groups of two, right? The apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. But for our purposes, we're going to look at it as four this morning. You do well to note that these devotions that the church had, these commitments, defined the earliest church. It isn't the other way around. Let me say that a different way. It is not the case that the church exists as a corporate entity or institution and then chooses what it will believe and do. That's not the way it works. Instead, it is the very beliefs and practices that define the church. The church only exists insofar as it's doing accurately these four things by the power of the Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus. Anytime any so-called church steps outside of these four things, it ceases to be a church. And these four devotions, if you will, they aren't up for grabs. They have not changed since Peter finished his last word of that first sermon on that first Pentecost Sunday. 
The first thing is what? See it in your Bible? That's right, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So if you're reading along in this and you say, okay, these are the things that define the church. They have to be central to the church. The church is only the church as it's gathered around these things. You read the first one, the apostles' teaching, and your question is, okay, well, what is the apostles' teaching? Well, it's pretty clear. Still have your Bible open. Look back to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is the concluding sentence of Peter's first sermon. It's the summarizing of all of what has just followed in Peter's sermon. And all of what followed in Peter's sermon is what? It's apostolic teaching. So what is apostolic teaching? Chapter 2, verse 36. That God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's apostolic teaching in a nutshell. That Jesus is Lord in Christ. That you and I are rebellious sinners who would have been in the crowd chanting crucify him. And yet at the same time, that if you belong to God in Jesus, you are the very joy that was set before Jesus for which he endured the cross. That's apostolic teaching. This commitment that at a deep level we are far more broken and sinful and evil and wicked than we care to admit. And at the same time, we're more deeply loved by God than we could ever dare to dream. That's apostolic teaching. Look at verse 38 of chapter 2, just before our passage. So Peter preaches this apostolic teaching, and what happens? They say, man, what, what should we do about this? And Peter says, it's simple. You've got to do some things. You've got to repent. You've got to change your mind. You've got to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. That's apostolic teaching. And that's what cuts men and women to the heart. It happened on that day, and it still happens today. Apostolic teaching. The first mark of the early church is that they devoted themselves to it. It wasn't a peripheral tag-on. It wasn't an add-on. When they gathered together, they said, what did the apostles teach? Let's dig into that. Right? That's why we shape our worship services the way that we do. The preachers here don't stand up and give a TED talk and then tag on a little scripture at the end. We jump right into the scriptures and we say verse by verse, this is apostolic teaching. This is what matters. Let's devote ourselves to it. Apostolic teaching is bearing witness to Jesus as the Christ. It always points back to Christ. And apostolic teaching does so by expositing scripture. That's what Peter did in that sermon that we looked at last week. He cited from all of the Bible that existed at that point, which was the Old Testament. So today, 
When we say we are a church, what are we saying? We're saying that we devote ourselves to the apostolic teaching, to the scriptures. Now, there are different names for this collection of 66 books broken into Old Testament and New Testament. You probably call it the Bible. Do you know what the, the root meaning of the word Bible simply is? Say it out loud if you know. Book. That's right. That's why we call it the Holy Bible, the Holy Book. Some people refer to it as the Scriptures, and it contains all the apostolic teachings about Jesus Christ, New Testament and Old. But there's another fancy term for it. It comes from Greek. It's called the canon of Scripture. Not canon like canon, but like canon, C-A-N-O-N. In Greek, it means ruler or measuring stick. When we call this collection of writings the canon of Scripture, what we're saying is that this is the ruler. It's this apostolic teaching contained in this Bible, in this book, in these Scriptures, that measures the outer bounds of apostolic teaching, Christian faith, and measures the church. It is only as churches devote themselves to the teachings of this book that they are, in fact, churches. When churches no longer devote themselves to apostolic teaching, then they fall outside of the canon, the ruler, and they're no longer churches. There might be something else, but they're not a church. I am often surprised in conversations by how many self-professing Christians think in ways that are far more secular than biblical. They bring secular ideas and notions to bear upon their life and upon their world to try to understand and make sense of it, to try to prescribe solutions. They turn to a secular toolbox instead of devoting themselves to apostolic teaching and thinking biblically, right? Permeating their thoughts with the warp and the woof of Scripture. As you read Scripture, it has an internal grammar to it, an internal grammar to the gospel. And the more we as a church and the more we as Christians devote ourselves to apostolic teaching, the more our thoughts will become conformed. The Scripture says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We want minds that are transformed by the apostolic teaching, by the Word of God. You'll see Christians who do not devote themselves to apostolic teaching the moment you see someone who's loading biblical words with worldly meaning. Do you know what I mean by that? If you ever find yourself in a discussion about ethics or moral theology or the practical implications of the gospel, how should men and women live, and you hear someone using a word like love in a way that's not consistent with Scripture, you see, Scripture has a very particular view of love. 
that we ought to love one another so much that we hold one another to truth so that the people that we love don't end up in hell. That's truly loving. But when you hear so-called Christians who divest the word love from its biblical meaning and instead infuse it with a secular worldly vision, like love is just infinite permissiveness and acceptance and tolerance. See, these are so-called Christians who have not devoted themselves to apostolic teaching. They haven't conformed and transformed their minds to the warp and woof of Scripture. Gotta think biblically. It only happens over time when the church and individual Christians regularly devote themselves to apostolic teaching. Look, I want you to see this in verse 42, and I'm not going to take as long on the others. This is the first on the list of four, and it's also the first priority for the church because it all starts here. Churches devote themselves to apostolic teaching. It also all ends here. Churches cease to be churches when they depart from apostolic teaching. Look, I don't want to make this too pointed, but let's go here. There are a lot of individual Christians in churches, so-called, air quotes, that you will see that are They have the best of intentions, right? They have the best of intentions. But at their core, they lack conviction and confidence that the gospel is better. They lack conviction and confidence that the gospel is the best, that it is the power of God to salvation, the gospel, nothing else. Can you think of examples of that? Have you seen examples of that during the month of June? Listen, we have to come to this humbly and with love. When you see Christians or churches that are flying pride flags, this is not a source for, this is not, this is not something we ought to mock or, or bring pride to bear on for in our own hearts. Instead, we ought to look at it and tremble and pray. They're but for the grace of God, would we go? It's a, an exposure of a lack of confidence and conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ contained in apostolic teaching is best. And so individual Christians and churches get off in the weeds with the best of intention, trying to find secular ways to make sense of and make better our world. The problem with worldly frameworks is that they they do the exact opposite of the thing that they purport to fix. So they promise to bring justice and equity and fairness, and instead they bring destruction, division, and segregation. 
And it's all because individual Christians and so-called churches have failed to devote themselves to apostolic teaching. So the very first church did this. They steeped themselves in. They, they thrived upon. They devoted themselves to apostolic teaching until it became the lens through which they saw everything. Until it became the solution to every problem at a deep level. The early church did not devote themselves to apostolic teaching because they were socially conservative, and neither should we. They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching because they believed that the gospel is the best, that it is God's plan for salvation, that it is God's plan for human flourishing. It's the first thing they did. Apostolic teaching. The second thing they did. Do you see it in the text? What is it? They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching and fellowship. Fellowship. So I want to tell you just a quick story. There's a group of people who are in North Burlington. They gather together regularly around shared common interest. Their biggest numbers are together on Sunday morning. They share their collective resources to further their common interest. They even pass budgets and have programs and plans. Do you know what that group is called? Hidden Lake Golf and Country Club. Right? Think about it. Seriously, what makes St. George's any different than a golf club? Hey, there you go. Good answer. The answer is always Jesus. But first and foremost, the thing that makes us different than a golf club is that we devote ourselves to apostolic teaching. The second thing is that we give ourselves to deep fellowship. Now, when you're defining the church, it might seem like an odd thing to include fellowship in the list, right? Apostolic teaching seems gritty. You're like, yeah, man, that's definitely definition of the church. But then the second one being fellowship, like, that's a little thin, isn't it? I'd suggest to you this morning that the problem is not that fellowship is thin to define the church, but that your view of fellowship is too thin. I'm going to talk more about that as we move through the text, but for now, Christian fellowship is so much more than just a polite conversation over egg salad sandwiches. It's talking about Jesus. So you're right. The difference is Jesus. It's talking about the gospel and about what the Lord is doing and teaching you. It's deeply sharing your most cherished, common, shared trait with other Christian men and women. It's not just chats with your buddies and friends over coffee and cookies. The kind of fellowship that defined the church back then and still today is brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. The fact of the matter is, we get to enjoy each other's company for all of eternity. And we get to start right now. As you press into that kind of defining, life-giving, in-Christ fellowship, 
you discover that fellowship with one another is fellowship with and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to say more about that later. Look at the third trait. So they devote themselves to the apostolic teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now what they're talking about here is both specific and general. The earliest church had meals together regularly. And some of those meals are the Lord's Supper, communion. But in a very general sense, this group of of earliest believers in the church throughout history has gathered around apostolic teaching, deep fellowship, and we like to eat together. That's why we have lunch together here once a month after church. That's why we have coffee and cookies afterwards. You know, there's something about eating together that promotes fellowship, isn't there? Something very special happens. Have you ever considered the English word companion? It comes literally from the Latin, panion being bread and com being together. Companions are people who eat together. It's in that act of eating together that our fellowship in Christ deepens and is affirmed. No small thing. Fourth one is prayers. So they devote themselves to the apostolic teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Look, this is a biblically normal result of a church simply being a church. But there's a sense of awe. Now, maybe you've just recently started coming to church, and you can definitely sense that in a keen way. You know, you come to church, and you're like, man, there's something going on here. Something bigger than me. Something supernatural. There's the natural. You know, I participate in that regularly. Then I come to church, and I feel something that's greater than that. And I want to be a part of that. That's supernatural. But it's biblically normal. When churches operate just like they're supposed to, there's a sense of awe that falls on every soul. Look at verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. Look, this, as we jump in, is one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture. Here is a case in point where the church is defined by her approach to a social issue. And the problem is that we bring our secular mindset and our secular metric and our secular framework to bear when trying to understand what's happening in the early church in Scripture. This is a case where we are going to have to actively identify and reject worldly thinking. Where we're going to have to actively identify and reject secular solutions to real problems. Where we have to remind ourselves that in the gospel, in Christ, we have something better than any political system could ever offer. We have Jesus. So let's back away from this and work our way in, okay? Um, I think everyone in this room would agree that there's a problem. There's a clear problem in our world. 
And the problem can be defined as power imbalances. The fact that in different ways and in different degrees, people with more power take advantage of people with less. So what's the solution? Well, over the last five years or so, I've seen this way of thinking accelerate and just run rampant throughout the society and even worse so throughout the church. The solution that our secular world tells us to this problem of hegemony and power differentials, the solution we're told by the secular world is Marxism. Cultural Marxism. We need to look at everything through critical theory. The oppressed and the oppressor. The hegemony of some over others. Identity groups. Intersectionality. That's what we're told is going to solve the problem of disparity. That's what our world is ramping up with. It's far more concerning to me when I see it coming into the church. What we need is clear thinking. We need to have deeply rooted convictions. We need to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and reject these worldly models. You read verses 44 and 45. They're selling everything they have. They're holding everything in common. They're distributing to everyone who has needs. See, R.D., isn't that communism or socialism? No. No, it's not. You see, the worldly framework of Marxism is a cheap facsimile. It's a counterfeit of what the gospel has always done better through the church. Our proclivity to long for Marxism in our society and to try to see that as the solution exposes this deep human longing for what we all want, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out by the power of the Spirit in the church. And it's not the same thing. What the early church practiced and set out for us is a paradigm of the gospel at work in the church. And look, I could do a three-hour lecture on this, but I'm not going to. Um, Suffice it to say, the most notable difference between this and Marxism or socialism is that the state is not involved. There's no compulsion. It's not like the state is coming upon the early church and forcing and enforcing the redistribution of wealth. You see, the the world right now looks at the problem of disparity and says the answer is that there needs to be external compulsion to force redistribution and care for the needy. Got to take wealth from some and give it to others. But that's not the biblical picture. In fact, the Old Testament goes to great lengths to define and to protect the property of the individual person. In the New Testament, when Paul's talking about love and sharing and charity within the church, he's so clear. I'm telling you, if you haven't read this, it's going to be shocking to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's talking about charity within the church, and he says this, 
brace yourselves. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So the Christian value of sharing everything in common and looking after those in need is not socialism, it's not communism. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths in these passages in the church to say, um, look, you all have a collective responsibility for and to one another, and you have a sense of personal responsibility to look after yourself. That's why he instructs widows. He says, look, if you're a true widow, the church is going to look after you because you're in need in a way that just something tragic fell upon you. It was nothing of your own doing. You're a widow. You need, you're in need. He says, but if you're a widow, seek to get remarried. Take responsibility for yourself. There's this calling in Scripture for Christian men and women to care for the truly needy, while at the same time embracing their own personal responsibility for themselves and for their family. In other words, what we see here at the inception of the church and then throughout the history of the church is a model of this. Start by taking care of yourself and then generously share and care with others. The difference is, Marxism says the state compels you. You no longer hold any property. The state compels you to redistribute your wealth. Christians look at it and say, how can I generously share and care for those around me? In communism and in socialism, your stuff belongs to the state. In the Christian church, in the gospel, everything belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're merely stewards. And so you share and you care. The picture we see here is that the church is defined by apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and generously sharing and caring with one another. Christian men and women ask the question, what are the needs? What has the Lord given me? And how can I share? All right, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the earliest church gathered in two distinct ways. Did you hear it in that verse? And so they established a model for us. They gathered together in the temple. Now, earlier, I made a passing comment that fellowship with one another is, in fact, fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. The earliest church went to the temple. And so they established a pattern for all of us to go to church. They gathered in these larger groups to worship the Lord. They're told in Hebrews to not forsake gathering together in larger groups. So the church is defined by the fact that it gathered and gathers. And so the earliest church did this for, well, roughly about four generations from this point forward. They gathered together in the temple in Jerusalem. Until 70 AD. And then the temple was destroyed. 
Now, this was not nearly so devastating for the Christians as it was for the Jews. Because the temple had been the centerpiece of worship of God ever since 516 B.C., all the way through to 70 A.D. It was God's physical address on earth. It was the location of the manifest presence of God in the temple. And so all of God's people would go to Jerusalem to worship God. Even the earliest Christians in Jerusalem, they'd gather day by day in the temple to worship God. It now lay in ruins at 70 AD, 40 years from this point. But the Christians still continued to gather in larger groups, like what we do and call church. Because they remembered the words of Jesus. In John chapter 2, right after Jesus cleansed the temple, we're told in 2.18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You see, friends, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God's presence on earth. And we, in John 14, are the rooms. Did you ever think about that? Jesus said to his disciples just before he was crucified, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, in my Father's temple, same word, are many rooms. That's you and that's me. And so when we gather together like the early church did, we don't make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to visit the temple. Our temple is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are gathered together as many rooms in that temple. And I hope that makes you as excited as it makes me. Because the early church gathered together in the manifest presence of God in a stone building. But when you and I are sitting here together in church, we are gathered together in fellowship with one another in and with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the temple. Verse 46. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They gathered in the temple. They also gathered in their homes. Now this might appear like a shameless plug after George's announcement earlier this morning, but it's not. Because look, our goal is not to try to fill up our programs. But our conviction is that when we behave in biblically normal ways as churches, God blesses it. He blesses you. When was the last time you gathered together in each other's homes? Well, we are providing this opportunity through growth groups. I want to add to what George said, and on your way out today, take a second and just sign out the growth groups form so that we can organize and help you to find a growth group that you can actually do what the early Christians did, gather together in the church and gather together in homes. When you gather together in homes, it's nothing fancy. You just do these four things. Apostolic teaching, um, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. 
I'll close with verse 47. They were all praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, that's one of the things that I think drives and compels us here at St. George's. Um, I was thinking several years ago about this, and I thought, if St. George's Anglican Church were to just vanish overnight, would anyone in Northeast Burlington wake up, eat their Cheerios, and say, hey, where did those guys go? Would anyone in our community even notice? Well, the earliest church was not only noticeable, but they would have been missed because they had favor with all the people. I think anything that we do in terms of our outreaches is to that end so that we can build a good reputation with those people around us and then leverage that good reputation for the gospel, show them how the gospel is the answer to all of their longings. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Praise God. We have our baptism service next Sunday because people are getting saved. And that shouldn't be abnormal for churches. That should be normal. You guys know, um, I've introduced him as he's visited, our former associate pastor, Ken Bombay, the K-bomb. Um, Great big guy, sort of adds to his charm. And um, Ken was telling me a story that he was raised in a pastor's home in Saskatchewan. His dad was a pastor. And he said he remembers distinctly being a little boy and coming home for lunch for an entire week and hearing his father, the pastor, upstairs locked away in one of the bedrooms, praying and calling out to God with the door closed, every day for a week. Because they'd gone an entire month without seeing someone saved in their church. Friends, let's never get comfortable with that. When churches are functioning in biblically normal ways, day by day, the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church, for this move of the Spirit that happened back in Acts chapter 2 that will continue until Jesus returns to claim her as his bride. We pray that you would renew our devotion to the apostles' teaching in a deep way that our thoughts and ideas and affections would be conformed and transformed to you. Pray that we would enjoy deep fellowship that we would meet together on Sundays and we would meet together in one another's homes so that you would be seen and known as Lord and Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.